Good morning again and welcome. We are continuing this morning in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, so if you have a Bible you may want to turn there. We do have it printed in the bulletin for you uh, in case you don't have a Bible, but I would recommend following along in your Bible if you do. I need to tell you this morning about a meeting that's coming up. It is a meeting that uh, to which you are all invited. In fact, a meeting at which you will all be present. Every single one of you. Not only will everyone in this room be present, but everyone not in this room will be present as well. Every person in this city, this state, this nation, this world, every person who has ever lived or ever will live, everyone is going to be present at this meeting. The meeting referred to is the one in Romans 2.5, the beginning of the passage we're going to be looking at together this morning, where it talks about the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's a real event. That's a real day. And since that day is coming, and since on that day there will be a meeting between God and us, and we will all be there, and it's something in which we all have a vested interest, and so will be one of the main points of interest for us this morning. However, before we look any further into that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us now as we turn to you again and it is to you that we're turning, that's what we're doing here. These are more than words on a page when we look at your scriptures. There's more going on than reading a book when we look to your word because these words are your words and they are written as a revelation of yourself. To make yourself known, at least in part, to your creatures. So then help us now to see these words as the window that they are. Help us to look through this window made of words and see the God who comes ever more clearly into view every time we look. Because to see you is to know you. To know you is to love you and to want to give you the honor that is your due. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now before we spend a little time thinking about this meeting, this day of wrath that is coming, and more specifically at what will take place during that meeting, uh, just before we look into that, let's remind ourselves briefly of where we are in this letter and what we've seen so far. Uh, After a few preliminaries in this letter of missionary introduction, that's what we're working with, uh, the Apostle Paul launches pretty much straight away into what you could say is the controlling theme for the letter, namely the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ and how this good news, this gospel, is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, for Jews and Gentiles, which is to say for the whole world, for anyone who will 
believe. That is the message that Paul wants to get across in this letter, along with some of the main implications that flow from that. And so because Paul wants to get that message across, and he wants it to get it across to all kinds of people, he has taken the path early on in this letter of showing how and why it is that all people are lost in unrighteousness and therefore in need of a Savior and a righteousness that they cannot themselves produce and yet without which they will not see God except in His wrath and fury. In pursuit of that goal and after briefly introducing and declaring His gospel in kind of seed form in one sixteen to 17, Paul then devotes the next part of his letter, one eighteen to 32, to exposing the state and condition of humanity in general. And the picture he paints is of a people who are inexcusably and have inexcusably suppressed the truth about God and have rejected Him and thus have been given over to their sin in various ways, rendering themselves liable and deserving of God's wrath and judgment. Now because Paul knows his audience, he knows who he's writing to, he knows some things about this Roman church, even though he's never been there, but he knows that there are at least two distinct subgroups of people in that church, namely those who were formerly Jews and who had embraced Christianity, and those who were formerly non-Jewish or Gentiles who may or may not have had some kind of religious affiliations. Further, because Paul himself is a former Jew, or perhaps uh, well what people would call now a completed Jewish person who had embraced Jesus as Messiah. But because of his own upbringing, Paul was quite familiar with the Jewish ways of thinking and practices. And as such, Paul would have known only too well the often unkind and unflattering ways that his own people, and he himself at one time, had typically spoken about and thought about non-Jewish people. He would have known and been nurtured in the habit of thinking and expecting little from the Gentile world, at the same time making all kinds of superior assumptions about his own people over against them. And even though Paul was a Christian now, he knew enough about his own heart, and he knew enough about the human heart to know that old habits die hard and that people don't just flip a switch and overnight unlearn habits and attitudes and perspectives that have been nurtured over the course of a lifetime. The human heart, even the converted Holy Spirit invaded human heart, just doesn't work that way. And so because of all that, and because Paul knows all of that, he knows that even as he's describing the general sorry state of humanity in one eighteen to 32 he knows that there would have been some people, uh, most likely some former Jewish people, as well as perhaps some very more religious persons in the Roman church who were checking it out, but who would have been listening to all that he said and thinking that at the end of the day, in spite of what he said there in 18 to 32, it really wasn't directed at them. (coughs) Paul knew that there would have been some people, instead of feeling convicted or indicted by what he said, would have actually come away from that feeling fairly self-righteous, maybe even vindicated, by what he said. They would have taken Paul's words in one eighteen to 32 as kind of a justifiable critique of the sorts of things that one would expect the Gentiles to get up to. And it is this second group of people then that Paul has begun to address at the beginning of chapter 2. He's addressing the person or group of persons that might be standing there exempting themselves from what he intends as a sweeping, all-inclusive indictment of humanity. 
In particular, as we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 a couple of weeks ago now, we saw uh, Paul take issue with the judgmentalism of this second group and how in their hypocrisy and their judgments, they were guilty of doing the very same things that they were criticizing others for. This morning we're picking up with all of that as Paul has more to say to this group of people whom we've identified as principally being made up of Jewish uh, people who are formerly Jews, uh, starting with verse 5 and working through to verse 11. And the thing that Paul seems to be taking aim at, which we'll see this morning as well as in a couple of other messages, are some of the assumptions that this group seems to be making about themselves and how a number of them, it seems, would be relying upon, and that's going to come up in later verses, aspects of their relying upon aspects of their Jewish heritage, such as the law, which were no doubt a, which was no doubt a genuine blessing, but they're relying on that as uh, somehow rendering them as being automatic inheritors of salvation. But it didn't do that, and nor did it automatically exempt them any, from, from any sort of judgment or ultimate judgment by God. So listen then, uh, with that sort of little bit of background, to what Paul has to say to this second group. We'll start reading from verse 3 to pick up a little bit of the context. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, there are a number of things to be seen in these verses. Starting with this one, uh, there is a coming a day, as I said in the introduction, when the Lord will come in judgment. And there will be many things that take place on that day when the Lord comes. I expect there will be. So what is said here is certainly, I think, not intended to be an exhaustive description of that moment in time. But the one thing that we can say for sure from these verses and others is that that day is coming. And when it arrives, there will be a roll call, so to speak, and the attendance on that day will be 100%. Everyone will be there, every infant in this room, every unborn child in this room, every elderly person in this room, everyone in between. Indeed, as we saw before, every person who's ever lived and will be present. There will be no exemptions, no exceptions, no free passes, no holidays, no excused absences. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. It doesn't matter if you have an opinion about Jesus or you don't. It doesn't matter whether you want to be present or not. You are going to be there. Every last one of us will be there. You don't have a choice in this matter. Every last one of us is going to stand before the judge of judges. Before the one who knows everything about us. 
sees our hearts, our minds, one for whom there are no surprises, no secrets, no unknowns. Every one of us is going to stand before that kind of judge. Which is to say, before Almighty God. The second thing I want you to see, and is with the first point, it's not a difficult point. Indeed, nothing in this verse is really difficult, and by that I mean there's nothing complicated going on here. I think what's being said is pretty clear and pretty straightforward, but the clear, undeniable teaching of this verse is that this judgment that is going to take place, and at which we're all going to be present, is going to be done according to works. Those who are found to be pursuing honor and glory and immortality, all of which I take it are centered upon God, that is God's honor, God's glory, desire to be with this God forever, which is what the immortality is about. But all those that are found to be pursuing these things by means of patiently doing good, the text tells us, will be rewarded with eternal life. And all those that are not, who are self-seeking, pursuing unrighteousness, will be rewarded with the wrath and fury of God. That is clearly what is being said here. Now, if you've been here for this series on Romans, or even if you are simply familiar with Paul's teaching in general, these words and this kind of language may come as something of a surprise or even a shock to you. But there's simply no denying it. It's there. The concept is clearly there. It's there in verse 6 in the generic sense. It appears again positively in verse 7 in the phrase, as I've just said, by patience and well-doing. It appears again in verse 8 negatively in the phrase, those who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. Again in verse 9 negatively where it talks about people who do evil, followed by the counterpart to that in verse 10 when it talks about those who do good. This concept, this reality of judgment according to works is all over these verses. And not just these verses, is something that the Bible as a whole repeatedly and undeniably talks about. Psalm 62, 12, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Proverbs 24, 12, if you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Matthew 16, 24, 27. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man, by which he's referring to himself, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Those are just a few verses. It could produce more. But the point is clear. What Paul says here in Romans about a judgment that's according to works is not some aberration. This is not Paul introducing some new concept. The fact of God rendering to each person according to his or her works is something that is found in the Old and New Testaments, including on the lips of Jesus himself. Now we're going to unpack that a little more in a moment. Before we do, 
I do think it's important to pause for a moment and just think about what just that means. All by itself. Because at the very least, it means this. Your life matters. How you live matters. It makes a difference. Now you might think that perhaps it ought not be necessary to have to emphasize a point like that amongst Christians, but at least in some circles it seems to be increasingly necessary to do so. Because the sad truth is that there are versions of evangelicalism out there and even within PCA circles where the teaching on the grace of God is so strong uh, and, and perhaps given as a strong reaction to legalism often, but the result has been in some places that the pendulum has been pushed so hard away from legalism that there's this sort of hyper-grace emphasis that seems to make Christian living and Christian obedience and gospel transformation of a person into a nice but ultimately unnecessary option. As if sanctification, that is, becoming more like Jesus, doesn't really matter in the end. As if pursuing holiness or obedience doesn't really matter in the end. But such an emphasis flies directly in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture, including what's taught in the passage here this morning, that a day of judgment is coming, the judgment rendered will be according to works. And what that means, at the very least, is this. How we live matters. How we speak and think and act, it makes a difference. And not being concerned about those things is not a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of foolishness. The third thing I want you to see in these verses is not only that there is coming a day of judgment at which we will all be present and that the judgment takes place will be rendered according to our works, but also that the one who renders the judgment, the Lord God, will do so with impartiality. There will be no one who has an inside advantage here. No one's going to be in any better position before the Lord than any other person. This is important for Paul to say because as we've already seen, Paul knows his audience. He knows that there are a number of former Jewish people who are now, some of whom are Jewish Christians in Rome and who have all their life belonged to and identified with the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these people have been taught, and rightly so, and Paul will say something more about this in this same letter. But they've been taught that the blessings that God's chosen people experienced were real blessings. That the favor they experienced as his people was real favor and was not equally experienced by all people on this planet. There were real advantages to their having grown up Jewish, and that's true. But even so, those advantages notwithstanding, none of those advantages now translated into any sort of privilege or gave them any kind of leverage when it came to standing before the judgment seat of God. None of those things gave them the right to expect preferential treatment with regard to God's assessment and discernment of their lives. And Paul makes that point in two different ways here. He does it firstly by use of this phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek, which, as we've seen in the previous message, is simply Paul's reference to the fact that God, in working out his plan of salvation, chose to do that through a particular person, Abraham and his descendants, the most famous of which would be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so this phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, recognizes that particularity in God's working out of his plan. But the way that Paul uses it here is clearly intended to short-circuit 
any wrong assumptions or conclusions that certainly many in his day would have come to with regard to their privileged position before God as Jewish people. Paul knew that it was quite natural for his people to assume that they would be first in line for God's blessing and salvation. However, they would have thought quite differently about being judged by God in any ultimate sense. Many would have regarded themselves since they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as beyond any sort of ultimate judgment like that. And so in that kind of context, Paul's statement then about the judgment of God being for the Jew first and also to the Greek, that statement would have been something of a shock for them to hear. Those who had the priority seats in terms of God's redemptive plan and purpose are also in the priority seating position when it came time when it comes time for the judgment to be rendered. So it's kind of a balancing statement. That's one way that Paul makes the point of God's impartiality. He also does it with the bare statement of verse 11. God shows no partiality. But the fourth and final thing I want you to see about these verses is probably the thing that has occurred to most of you, maybe all of you, and has perhaps been eating at you the entire time. And if I could frame it as a question, it would be something like this. If the judgment of God is for all people and if it is rendered according to works, how does that fit with the gospel of grace? How does what Paul is saying here fit with what he's already said about the righteousness of God? The righteousness that is given to us as a gift from God that places us in a right standing before God. How does all of that fit together? with this to put an even finer point on it how does what is said here work with what Paul is going to say very soon in Romans 3.28 for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law what he says in Romans 4.5a and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness John Stott's very helpful here and does a good job of both framing and then responding to the questions raised by this text. He uh, asks this question. He says, has the apostle taken leave of his senses? Does he begin by declaring that salvation is by faith alone, for example, 116 and following, and then destroy his own gospel by saying that it is by good works after all? No, Paul is not contradicting himself. What he is affirming is that although justification is indeed by faith, judgment will be according to works. And the reason for this is not hard to find. It is that the day of judgment will be a public occasion. Its purpose will be less to determine God's judgment than to announce it and vindicate it. The divine judgment, which is a process of sifting and separating is going on secretly all the time as people range themselves or position themselves for or against Christ. But on the last day, its results will be made public. The day of God's wrath will also be a time when His righteous judgment will be revealed. And such a public occasion on which a public verdict will be given and a public sentence passed will require public and verifiable evidence to support such decisions. And the only public evidence available will be our works, what we've done and have been seen to do. The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence 
of good works of love in our lives. The apostles Paul and James both teach this same truth. That authentic saving faith invariably issues in good works and that if it does not, it is bogus or even dead. Piper too is helpful here. He says, the point is this. Eternal life is not earned by the merit of our good deeds. It's obtained for us by the death of Christ and based on the righteousness that we have by faith in Him. What verse 6 says, there will be a judgment according to deeds. And verse 7 says, when it says that, and when verse 7 says that eternal life is given to those who persevere in good deeds, the meaning is that the faith that justifies always sanctifies. A changed life, not a perfect life, But a changed life comes as the fruit of being united to Christ. So a transformed life is a necessary condition of eternal life, but does not earn or merit eternal life. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16 to 17, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. The appearance of fruit... The appearance of fruit does not make a tree a fruit tree. It shows that it's a fruit tree. So a transformed life does not make a person a Christian. A transformed life shows that a person is a Christian. In summary then, in the last day, there will be a judgment. It will settle finally and publicly who enters eternal life and who doesn't. The verdict not guilty at this judgment will be based on the work of Christ on the cross. The guilt of all true believers was carried by Jesus. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But that verdict will be and will accord with our deeds. Our daily lives will give evidence that we trusted Christ more than anything else. And that we loved him more than the praise of men. So again, and in short, how we live matters how we think matters how we speak matters that's the takeaway in terms of Paul's Roman audience he was undoubtedly aiming these words at the Jew who as Cranfield says relied complacently on the fact of his knowledge about God and his knowledge of God's will and plan and purposes as if possessing a knowledge that stops short of obedience is enough Having correct knowledge is not enough and to count on such a thing is folly because God's judgment will clearly take account of our deeds. So there's a warning in these verses. And that warning remains not only for Paul's original readers but for us as well, for anyone who has a similar perspective. The warning remains for any one of us who can maybe wax eloquent about the gospel of grace and the mercy of God but whose life pattern over time and when seen as a whole and you take in that view from 10,000 feet seems to evidence little if any impact of God's truth in their heart or life. It's as if we're to believe that the Spirit of God might take up residence in a person's life as He does in every believer and yet somehow prove to be ultimately ineffective and unsuccessful and incapable of bringing about spiritual reformation and transformation within a given person. Is that really possible? Can the Holy Spirit of God fail? These words stand as a warning to the person for whom God's kindness and mercy does not lead again and again to this repeated dance of brokenness and repentance and faith, but instead 
to greater and greater presumptiveness, greater and greater indulgence. So brothers and sisters, hear the message of this text. How you live matters. How we live matters. It matters. There is a judgment coming. It's going to be according to our works. Let the truth of that impact you. Let the truth of that cause you, in the first instance, to fear God. Let it cause you to tremble at the thought of it and how far short you will come up in that assessment and let it cause you to run to Christ by whose perfect life and by his sacrificial death and by that greatest of all good works being credited to us on the cross. He offers to God's people a righteousness that God requires but which we could not ever produce ourselves. So let it cause you to run to Christ first. Even further, let the truth of this coming judgment according to works cause you to not only run to Christ, but also as you reflect upon God's great kindness in the cross and at His repeated and continued kindnesses towards you daily, let that reality soak into your soul. Look upon this one who loves you and continues to love you and let that beautiful mercy draw your heart towards him in thanks and in gratitude and let it be seen and shown in a life of willing imitation and faithfulness to him not because you have to but because you will because you want to because you want to be like this one who loves you so well let the truth of this coming judgment keep you fighting hard with yourself Let it be a constant reminder to you that how we live matters and how we respond to truth matters. Whether we wrestle and continue wrestling with our hearts in our sin or whether we think it's ultimately no big deal and so instead of wrestling with our sin, we simply make our peace with it. Don't make your peace with it. It matters. And it matters not because it determines our salvation but because it demonstrates it or the lack thereof. Let's pray. Father, I think if we're honest most of the time, what we really want from you is just a hall pass and you want all of us you didn't just give us a ticket you invaded us by your spirit and you're not going to be content you're finished restoring everything that's been broken and lost everything that was lost in the fall the image that was marred and disfigured your image is going to be restored Though we're not always thankful in the moment, ultimately we will be nothing but grateful that you're saving us that way. Father, help us to take seriously the things that you take seriously and to remember the things you say to us. Help us, Father, to when we are overwhelmed to continue to run to the cross to be comforted and assured by that security of the righteousness that you have given us in the Lord Jesus 
But Father, um, may it be that we evidence that reality, that it becomes apparent that there is that fruit which Jesus referred. Father, as we see that, help us to remember to give you thanks. As others pointed out, help us to remember to point them to you as the author of all of those things, as the giver of all good gifts. Use us, Father, to tell others this truth about your mercy and your love, the ways that you are you save and are saving us. Help us to speak about it and to be witnesses of it with our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward. We'll take that up at this time.